This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. From the Headstuff Podcast Network, welcome to The World According to Wikipedia, the podcast that explores the weird, wonderful and baffling world of Wikipedia, the people who write it and what makes them tick, with me, Fanula. And me, Rebecca. In this episode, we're going to be talking to Eric Stewart, the creative director of Creative Commons. You've mentioned Creative Commons licenses to us before, Rebecca. What does this have to do with Wikipedia? Very good question. We've mentioned Creative Commons licenses in relation to how the content of Wikipedia is licensed. But also, Wikimedia and Creative Commons are two fairly big names in what tends to be referred to as the open community, with a capital O. Okay. In broad terms, we are interested and invested in promoting the use of open principles in all sorts of aspects of human endeavour, from technology to education, data to cultural objects. So what do you mean by open principles? Open principles would refer to, generally, the use of open licences to ensure that objects, so created items, like teaching materials, images, sound files, video or text in general, are free to use in different settings. In other words, the creator has chosen a license which makes it clear when, where and how their creation can be used without any concerns by the user about breaching copyright or incurring any cost. Ah, so for example, our intro music and thank you very, very much, the Great Northern Sound Society for that wonderful tune. Exactly. They placed a license on the song which made it clear to us that it was free to use um, under specific circumstances. In this case, they said that they would exercise, they would not exercise any copyright and it was royalty free over the song. So it was completely copyright free. And in other contexts, people might use other wording like public domain or CC0, which does the same thing. So public domain basically means that it's available in the public domain. Exactly. Exactly. Dublin podcast is basically Suzanne Kane and PJ Gallagher. It is a podcast that is designed very much look at the negative side of things and tell you that it is okay to get up in the morning and live your day. Suzanne Kane slightly crazy conservative lady and ultra-liberal lunatic headcase me, PJ Gallagher, doing our best to put a smile on your face. It's a midlife, it is literally a midlife crisis podcast. Start from next week, we'll have 10-15 minutes of extra bonus material that will be on the podcast every single week, which will be very focused instead of this usual sort of demented ranting. Excuse me. And you can sign up together on headstuffpodcast.com where you'll find loads of other brilliant podcasts with, with all brilliant bonus topics. Material, and apparently. loads of great bonus material that isn't us, but stick with us too. Thank you. episode's random rule and we hinted at this in the last episode we are going to take a closer look at canvassing on wikipedia so this is not like the door-to-door political canvassing that happens every local election or general election here or is it it could be seen that way Uh, the idea of canvassing is that if there's a discussion going on anywhere on wikipedia so like on a talk page, in a discussion about deleting an article or what's referred to as a request for comment, where kind of a discussion is opened about something, is that an, as an editor, you shouldn't go off and try and recruit fellow editors that you think would support your standpoint to swing a decision in such a discussion. Hmm. How often does that happen? That's really tough to gauge, like an awful lot of editor activity on Wikipedia. But when feelings are running a little bit high, then accusations can be thrown around a little bit about this. 
it's entirely legitimate to post about ongoing discussions elsewhere on Wikipedia, just kind of alert people that this discussion is happening. But when it starts to get a little unclear is how people read into the manner in which those posts are framed. So sometimes they're they're bot generated. So it's just like a little posting kind of saying such and such discussion has been opened over here. But as an individual editor, if you post something, the problem is with all forms of purely text communication, sometimes people can read meanings that were never possible that possibly were never intended by the writer. Mm. And other times other times it can be more blatant, though. And in general, as mentioned in the last episode, it, posting about these things in an emotive way on social media is frowned upon, definitely. Yeah, and I suppose, as with a lot of things, everyone's personal experience comes into the interpretation. Just like everywhere else on the web, basically. Yeah. Like at the moment in Irish Twitter and our personal interpretation of Matt LeBlanc as our everybody's, in fact, favourite uncle. And if you haven't seen that... I would urge anybody who is not in Ireland to go look at the Matt LeBlanc Friends Reunion Irish memes because they're wholesome. Or Matty Bowen, as he's now being referred to. Matty Bowen, Matty Bowen. Joe.ie and a few other places have written about this phenomenon now. So if I get one or two more references, you might actually see mention of this on the relevant Wikipedia pages soon enough. Ooh, interesting. We are now going to talk to Eric about his work with Creative Commons and his role as their creative director. Uh, my name is Eric Stoyer. I'm the creative director of Creative Commons, and uh, I'll tell you a bit about Creative Commons in a minute. I'm also a, a writer and a musician, and I'm really interested in the ways that we can use technology and uh, openness to create a better world. I, li- I like that mission, the personal mission statement uh, at the end. So you've already hinted at it. So first of all, for the uninitiated out there, what exactly is Creative Commons? Creative Commons is, I think the shortest way to, to frame it is that it is a, a, a relatively small nonprofit organization and a relatively large global community that are interested in creating what we think of as a commons of culture, knowledge, and information. So when I say commons, I mean similar to the way that a public park can be thought of as a commons. It's not privately owned. It's sort of accessible and by some measures communally owned. And uh, we have been in the business of doing this for about 20 years. And the primary way that I think people know of us, especially people that are active in the Wikipedia community are through what I think of as being our signature project called Creative Commons Licenses. And those are a set of copyright licenses that are free, publicly available licenses that anyone can use to attach to their work. So the things that they've created that they hold copyright to to make certain rights available to the general public, meaning anyone out there. So you have a set of rights that you are bestowed with when you create something, copyright rights. If you wanna give some of those rights over to the public so that they can do things like build upon the work that you've done, share it, remix it, use it in new ways, then you might use a Creative Commons license to do that. And as a, as a creator, I suppose, we're was that part of how you became involved in the community or what was your way in? It is, as a matter of fact. I was a an editor for a few years back in the 
mid-2000s at Wired Magazine, and we did a big feature on Creative Commons, which at that point was a relatively new approach to copyright and was, um, I think at that point, a response to some of the, I guess at that point, people thought of copyright as being either like, you know, it's a complete free for all where anyone can do anything with anything that's on the internet, grab it and do whatever you want. Or it's all kind of locked down by a handful of media companies. And we really wanted to say, well, look, there's opportunity for middle ground. That's what Creative Commons before I got there. That's the sort of the mission that they had. We did a big thing on them with Wired. Um, I was part of a small group of editors at Wired that put together what was called the Wired CD, which was one of the first major projects, especially in the music space, that used Creative Commons licenses. It included songs by uh, Beastie Boys, David Byrne, Zap Mama, Matigre, uh, Danger Mouse, so some pretty major artists, all, I think, affiliated with major labels at the time. And the idea was to show as things are changing, as business models are changing, as access and ways that people use technology is going to just be changing and changing and changing, that there's room for you know, what we say is the middle ground between all rights reserved and no rights reserved, and that Creative Commons be a way to do that. So with that project specifically, which I think is a good way to understand how the licenses work more generally, um, artists got to choose which of the handful of Creative Commons licenses they wanted to issue their work under so that people could use them. Those licenses include clauses, legal clauses, like the uh, ability to say to the public, I still own the copyright to this song or this work, but uh, you can use it as long as it's for non-commercial purposes, or you can even use it commercially, but you have to give me credit. So those kinds of things. Um, that's how I got involved. I was really enamored with the idea of uh, an approach like this, especially because it was sort of a, a tweak and, a, and, a, and for lack of a better word, like a, a hack on the law, which I think up to that point I thought of as being sort of the enemy, like the law is something that's going to tell me what I can't do. And these were lawyers that were actually working to try to figure out ways to enable things that people wanted to do, to, to, to set kind of a legal set of parameters around things that people wanted to do to make it legal so that it wasn't just that, uh, again, it was sort of this free-for-all where anything goes. It was, it was legal and it respected the wishes of creators, but it also was respectful of the idea that with the new technologies and opportunities that were available to the public, that there might be new ways that we might build on existing culture. And, and it would be a real shame if we couldn't do that because the law wrapped everything up in very restrictive copyright. So since you've, you know, work for Creative Commons, um, so what does your day-to-day your -day job involve? So I worked at Creative Commons twice. So I got uh, involved in that first spell of being at Creative Commons uh, in that era that I was describing to you, which was 2005-ish. So pretty early on, relatively early on in the Creative Commons world. Um, and at that point, it was really about kind of partnering with artists, media companies, technology platforms, getting them to understand why Creative Commons would be a useful approach, either for them to use directly or for them to offer to their users. For the, so for the example of like these platforms, Vimeo, SoundCloud, YouTube, Flickr, uh, there's many platforms where people publish their work into. Ultimately, uh, Wikipedia uh, went in the direction of using Creative Commons as well. And all of those were relationships that we developed came in and said, look, your users, there's a demand for using the 
places that they're already publishing and sharing their work as a place to not only share it with other people on the platform, but to have the life of it extend beyond the platform and to be incorporated and use other places. And the Creative Commons is a great uh, tool to do that. So that was sort of my my um, my job the first time around, uh, doing that with platforms, getting artists, uh, major artists, getting cultural institutions to use the licenses. So we had a big project with uh, with the band Nine Inch Nails, where when uh, Trent Reznor was uh, moving out of his record deal that he'd had for a long time at the time, he was trying to figure out what's next. And he decided that, well, maybe I could give everything uh, from this album away uh, on the internet for free, but I don't want to just have it be completely for free. I want to still be the, uh, the the sole person that can commercialize it, but I'm totally happy for people to take this stuff and you know, use it in new ways. And so we work together on a Creative Commons license approach for that album. Um, a lot of these projects that I initially worked on, they were in and of themselves, I think, useful uh, and, and, and cool examples, the way that the licenses could be worked. But really, in a lot of ways, they serve to set examples for how other people might do it. So the real, um, well, a, a really big benefit of that Nine Inch Nails example, for instance, is that other people then saw, you know, they may not be Nine Inch Nails, but they're starting to make music. And if if if, if he does it and he gets um, a successful project out of it, well, maybe I could do something similar that's inspired by that. And um, that's obviously much more effective than a law professor or even someone who's a representative of a nonprofit organization who's got a vested interest in you using this approach, going out there and trying to evangelize around this idea. So getting people that were influential and smart and had creative approaches to using openness and free freedom on the internet uh, to, to partner with us around these kinds of projects, I think was really instrumental in the uptake of the licensing over the years. And then uh, I, I went. Uh, I actually went back to work for Wired again for several years, and then came back to Creative Commons again. So I've been at Creative Commons again for about four years, and this time uh, my job includes a version of that. Although these days we're much more focused on working with institutional adopters. So we're very focused on the glam sector, so galleries, libraries, archives, museums. I'm sure your folks uh, who listen to this are. are um, up to speed on, on on that acronym, but sometimes I'll throw that out there. Not everyone knows what I mean, but that that's a a huge space for us right now because we believe, and actually most of the you know the museums and people in the glam space that we talk to, they also believe that uh, that their mission is about uh, equitable access, and that uh, you know as they go online and increasingly move archives and increasingly digitize and increasingly strategize around new ways to offer things to the public to serve the public interest what's the best way to do that well we're working with them to uh to to ensure that there is a sharing approach that um that serves everyone and so that's one of the main spaces we're working on right now and then the other uh main area that we're working on in is the education space where, where similarly i think it's a a pretty commonly agreed upon idea that everyone should have access to high quality educational resources. And a good way to do that is to take them outside of the, uh, the restrictive paywalls that some uh, textbook uh, schemes and some uh, types of educational content are still locked behind. And Creative Commons wants to work with partners to unlock as much of that as possible, make it possible for it to be accessible by everyone, make it translatable by everyone, et cetera. So that's uh, two of the spaces we're really heavily involved in right now. So less about the kind of pop culture and and uh, and platforms. But so, so I, I do work in uh, some measure to support that work by, um, I think, I think the, the, 
the more digest version of my job right now is that I work on our our strategy along with the management team about how to increase awareness around what we do and understanding around what we do and to help uh, create things that enable the community of people who are interested in creative commons and this work to go out there, talk to decision makers in their own jurisdictions, talk to policymakers in their own, <clears throat> excuse me, in their own um, countries or, or areas and and get them to get excited about the Creative Commons approach. I think it's interesting, and it's for foreshadows my next question, like the, the the commonality of language that you find between the Creative Commons community and, and Wikimedia is, I think, now obvious. And we exist, I suppose, in this larger open, and I'm probably open with a with capital O, uh, community. What do you think that our communities, and there's obviously large overlap between both of them, can do for our shared kind of work and advocacy? in the next 20 years, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. One of the places I think that our shared work could overlap, and I've thought a lot about this, is that despite the fact that increasingly people, I think, understand the distinction between the ability to share on like social media, for instance, and then the ability to share on a place like Wikipedia or in the Creative Commons ecosystem, I think it's still a relatively, these are still, still relatively rarefied spaces that reward a kind of participation that is like on the one hand, I I, I think that's a good thing. You want people to to have uh, specific ideals and parameters, and it can't just be that open is everything. You know, just as long as it's like it has to do with sharing, then that's open. But that said, it's like there's a lot of people that I think we share aims with that feel closed off from our community because we have such a specific language. So I would like to see us figure out ways collaboratively and with other groups who work in this space to be more incorporative of people who I think have the right idea, but maybe don't have the right vocabulary. Interesting. Yeah, kind of deep, it's a, what I tend to call demystifying kind of. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. So on that note, like, do you have, do you have yourself within the Creative Commons space? Do you have a passion project that you just do yourself, even outside of work hours? Yes, or think about well, outside of work hours. <laughs> the, the, yeah. <laughs> it's, we're always working, right? Um, <laughs> there's a couple of things. I mean, I, I've always been interested in the idea of open music and I, and I, you know, I, I still am a practitioner and I make stuff and I try to put it out there always under creative commons or, you know, whatever kind of approach makes it as accessible as possible. I mean, that, that's, that's just a small way to contribute, but I think that uh, in being involved in that community is exciting for me, like seeing what people are doing, seeing how there's, despite the fact that, most of the stuff that I consume music wise, it lives in the same platforms that everyone's using. There's this kind of like, you know, handful of companies that where things live, if they don't live there, then they may as well not exist. And that to me is something I'm really a little concerned about. And I want to, it's something I do want to work about, especially after talking to, um, you know, I, I recently, I, we, we have a podcast at Creative Commons. One of the people that I had on recently was Leela Bailey of the Internet Archive. And she got me thinking about so many things related to that, about how if uh, if culture, especially contemporary culture, doesn't live in these platforms, Netflix, Spotify, I'll name them, those kind of things, that if it don't live there, if it doesn't live there, we, we have a, um, I, think, I think in some ways it feels like they may as well not exist at all. Like these things that just live outside of that space. So I'm, I'm very interested in how people that are making things right now that are maybe only on SoundCloud or maybe only on their own website, but aren't intentionally moving them into these, these, um, these ecosystems where uh, the, the idea is that it's, it's, the, it's everything is there, but it, it really isn't. 
Um, I don't know. It, it's it's a, a a sort of rambling way of saying that that's a space that I'm interested in is figuring out how to amplify these communities of creators and me specifically because I'm very interested in music. I'm I'm interested in knowing how uh, we might build more awareness around that community and make it a more formidable kind of environment that uh, that that people understand that that um, the only music that exists is not live on Spotify. And then there's a project that I, I worked on uh, for the about the last few years, and it was uh, related to Creative Commons, my, my job, Creative Commons specifically, but it is something that was a passion project, so I'll bring it up here. It's called the Open COVID Pledge. And it was uh, a project that was developed by a community of legal experts, a global group of people that were advocates for the open sharing of intellectual property that was patented saying, look, there's all this stuff out there that companies and smart people at universities have uh, come up with. And like everything else, it tends to be locked down. And for the purposes of coming to solutions around the COVID crisis, it would be very nice to develop a campaign where people pledge to release all of their intellectual property to the public for the use specifically in tackling and fighting uh, COVID. So that was a project that we uh, we did, and it's now lives with a project at American University called PIGIP, which is a uh, one of our partners. They are also uh, the the home of the Creative Commons USA project, and um, it was a great success. It was we 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 had some of the biggest patent holders in the world collectively pledged and made available to the public more than 500,000 patents for anyone in the world to use for the purposes of fighting against the pandemic. So that was a very uh, a very fulfilling project to be part of. But actually, you know, one of the really great things about it was uh, it, it still hasn't even happened yet, which is that it was a, a new kind of project for Creative Commons to get involved with in the sense that we've always thought of uh, as of uh, our approach to sharing to being very much about not saying what the purpose needed to be tied to. So this was different in the sense that we were saying, yes, it's quote unquote open, but it's only open for the purposes of things that are created either to uh, help kind of solve or at least fight the, the, uh, the crisis. And I think that that's going to be something that will be inspirational for us, how we approach other global threats. I mean, you think of of climate, I think there's a lot of partners that would be very interested in using an open pro approach where they where they offer everything that they've done to the public, to their competitors even, as long as it's for you know battling these existential threats. So I think that's going to be something that will be useful in informing how we approach some of our projects going forward at Creative Commons. That was fascinating. And he's been involved with so many people. I know. <laughs> I know. I mean, the people he was naming there, I was like, oh my God, this dude has been involved with everybody. Like, if he, is... he just casually named dropped Trent Reznor, I think. Yeah, I mean. That's you know, serious life goals right there. I can't ca casually name drop anybody. So, no, no, I got nothing. No, nothing on that level anyway. Um, I came across um, Eric and his work actually through, so... Much like Wikipedia, this year Creative Commons is 20. And Eric has been doing a series of podcasts uh, called Open Minds, which is celebrating 20 years of Creative Commons. Oh, wow. And an episode that I think an awful lot of our listeners and yourself might find quite interesting was with uh, one of the lawyers behind 
the Internet Archive. So I remember this time, around this time last year when the pandemic hit, there was a little bit of controversy. And it's an explanation of that. And it is really, really interesting. Oh, interesting, because I am very much team library um, in general and also team paying your authors because they make very little money. Uh, so that's why I'm team library, because libraries buy the books. You know, it, there is money transaction involved to pay the authors for. Yeah. Well, as as does as does the Internet Archive. But yes, yeah, so it was nuance around. Basically, they lifted the yeah. one loan out per, you know, so that only one person could have the ebook at any given yeah. time. But how that unfolded is really interesting. And it's it's a very good walkthrough of their process and how they then mediated that conversation with authors. Yes. So highly recommend. Excellent. I will check that out because I did find that whole thing very interesting. Because I again I am very pro open culture, but also people need to make money. <laughs> because we don't live in a culture where you don't have to make money. Yeah, so if you want to hear the extended interview with Eric, um, or in fact any of our other extended interviews, you can sign up to headstuffplus.com and become a member and select us as one of your chosen podcasts. Um, even if you don't select us as one of your chosen podcasts, you do still get access to all of our bonus material. But really, if you're listening to us now, you might as well support us on the Headstuff podcast and it's only five euro a month plus fat and you get us in your ears but more of us and more of other people just more in general in your ears five euro a month plus fat it's for nothing it's a bargain uncle matty Lebon would approve <laughs> of that use of the five pounds that he's just he's just, just thrown in your thrown in your pocket your there hand. yeah yeah they're nothing i know people can't see my wink but it's there <laughs> Who's this episode's hero? I want to give a shout out to another podcast adjacent activity that's happening in the wider Wikimedia movement. And that is a group of Wikimedians in Africa that have started what they're calling the Wiki Africa Hour. Yay, another pod in the Wiki family. Can you tell me more about him? It is the brainchild of a group of Wikimedians in Africa. And the Wiki Africa Hour is actually a video podcast or a vodcast, if you will, mm. um, about and for Wikimedians in Africa. Oh, brilliant. They are just about to release their second episode. And for their first one, they spoke to the outgoing CEO of the Wikimedia Foundation, Catherine Marr. Nice. And do you know what they're going to be covering in future episodes? Or The idea is to highlight all of the Wikimedia work, their wide-ranging activities and events, and various campaigns that are taking place across the continent of Africa. Uh, this is not only to improve connectivity across Wikimedia groups in Africa, but also with the wider wiki world. And it is definitely one to watch. Quite excited about that. We should be promoting it across all of our socials. Definitely. I mean, hearing, you know, it's, it's one thing for, for me to come, you know, every every episode and say, here's this really cool thing. And I've done, you know, we've talked about several mm -hmm. um, initiatives that are um, from or about Africa and African content. But actually hearing it from the people is way better than I can ever do yeah. justice. So. Yeah, definitely. And that was the world according to Wikipedia. Join us in two weeks. You can subscribe to us on your podcast player of choice. Follow us on Twitter at world underscore Wikipedia. Thanks to Patricia O'Flaherty for our artwork and Headstuff for production assistance. 
Go to headstuffpodcast.com for show notes, more information, and to support the Headstuff Plus network. of a sudden I can't breathe. Why can't I breathe? Oh yeah, pollen. <clears throat> I am poorly designed and executed. Yes. I mean, no intelligent design went into this body. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.